Um, If you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Um, We're going to uh, spend most of our time there this evening. Isaiah chapter 35. And we're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Can we just ask God's blessing on his word? God, we're so grateful that we are able to open your word tonight and hear you reveal yourself to us, your plan to us. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable and and pleasing to you, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You you spent last week in Isaiah 9, and tonight we're in Isaiah 35. Isaiah is a a prophet who lives in, uh, I think it's generous to say, a a very troublesome and, and tumultuous time almost devoid of hope. Uh, You see, Israel, the Israel of the Old Testament, as most of us think of it, has now been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom took the name Israel, and the southern kingdom took the name Judah, really just one tribe. And, And Jerusalem is located in the southern kingdom in Judah. And of course, that's where the temple's at in the southern kingdom. And this is where Isaiah spends his life, this is where he spends his ministry um, preaching and and proclaiming God's word to the people in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. Now, during his ministry, there's this world power called Assyria, and they're up way north, and they come down and they sweep through the northern kingdom, Israel, and wipe it out. 
Everybody but the poorest of the poor is, is attached to rope lines that have fish hooks on it. And the fish hooks are put through people's nose and mouths, and they are carried off to make a journey through the desert to Assyria. And this is the, this is the fate that, that the southern kingdom is now fearing. Is Assyria going to do the same thing to us? Are they going to come down and now wipe us out? And so they're scurrying to make alliances with other nations around the world so that if by any means they can stop that from happening to them, being hooked up in an inhumane manner and carried off to a land where everything is strange, everything is foreign. And it's regardless of of the alliances they're making, these people in the southern kingdom are in fear. There is a sense of, of weakness about them, that they can't do anything to help themselves. And this is the message that Isaiah is preaching to them. He's not giving them words of hope. He's saying, nope, that's actually what's going to happen to you. It won't be Assyria, but another nation, Babylon, they're going to come, and they're going to take us all away. And it, you know who's going to do it? It's going to be God that aids them in doing that. God is going to come and take us away because of our sin. So Isaiah wasn't helping the fears. He wasn't helping their anxieties and their worries and and their sense of weakness. He was, if anything, actually reinforcing that message. And it was sin. Sin that had ruined God's plan for his people and his creation. Because at the beginning, we see Adam and Eve in God's land, the the Garden of Eden, um, under God's rule and under his blessing, right? And they are his people. They have relationship with him. They walk with him in the garden. They, They have communication with him. And yet, here is that being destroyed. People taken away out of the land, taken away from under God's rule and under God's blessing, and as it were, no longer God's people, alienated from God because the temple is in Jerusalem. They're they're being pulled away from from the plan that God had created, that they would be God's people in God's place under his rule and under his blessing. And it left them hopeless. They wondered what they could do about it. And I think uh, we we see here the, the fact that this had an effect on them. In Isaiah 35, verse 3, Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble needs. Obviously, there were people, whether it was a minority or a majority, that, that were overwhelmed by this situation, overwhelmed by what they, what they kind of guessed to be God's abandonment of them. They were overwhelmed by the hopelessness of the world they lived in, right? And so Isaiah says, strengthen them, help them. I think when we look at our lives, the world we live in, the, the apparent hopelessness of our situation, of our present situations, and, and there's tons of different situations going on in the room, but they can fuel fears and they can sap our strength to the point where, has God abandoned me? Is this God's plan? 
we begin to wonder, when we look at the brokenness of the world around us, when we see our own sin, when we see the sin of others, when we see the brokenness of our own families and the brokenness of, of the, the lives of the people that we love and the, the lives of people we interact with, it seems as if there's no hope. And, and we begin to worry, what can we do about this? We begin to, to grasp for anything maybe that can just patch up a hole here or there. We want a solution to it. And so we begin to worry. We take on the responsibility for ourselves. We're faced with sin. We're faced with sin's effects. We're faced with the brokenness of the world we live in. Maybe God has abandoned us to these situations. Broken families, broken lives, sin deteriorating the world we live in. And in the midst of that, Isaiah says, strengthen each other. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble needs. Give hope to hopeless people. But how? How are they to give hope with all this going on? With Isaiah saying, in fact, this is, this is coming at a time when he said, you're still going to be carried off. You're still going to be ransacked by foreign invaders. You're still going to be treated ruthlessly. Some of you are going to be killed. Some of you are going to starve some of you might even eat your young, you're going to be so hungry. That's what Isaiah said. How can they possibly give hope in this situation? What hope is there? There was a researcher in the 1950s, a guy by the name of Kurt Richter, uh, worked at Johns Hopkins University. And he did uh, studies with uh, lab rats to, to look at human emotions. He was trying to make a correlation with human emotions. And he did this sink or swim test. What he did is he had these um, large glass jars, and he would fill them about two-thirds full of water. And he would place a rat in there, and the rat had to, to swim to survive. Now, rats are, are fair swimmers, as I understand. And so to, in order to, to um, stop them from just floating on top of the water and just kind of hanging out and, and reserving energy, he had a jet of water that would, that would uh, spray down very hard through the middle so that they had to continually swim and continually fight. And what he noted was this, that there were some rats who who would fight and swim and, and paddle and do whatever they could, struggle to survive, some of them up to over two days of just constant swimming until finally their bodies gave way and they drowned. But there were other rats who, after only 15 minutes, they just gave up, sank to the bottom, and they were done. Some, after a half hour, sank to the bottom, done. An hour, breathed their last breath, and done. And he was sure that it wasn't a, a, a difference in, in the, the physical nature of these rats. They were, they were all comparable. They were checked out. And so he decided to do a, a, a second round of tests. What he did was he had a, a rats and he would um, have his assistants handle the rats and then release them, handle them and then release them, handle them and then release them, then put them in the same glass jars of water. After only a few minutes, grab them out, let them rest. Next day, put them in the water. After a few minutes, grab them out. Let them rest. Repeated this cycle and over and over. And then he decided to repeat the sink or swim test. Every one of the rats in the second test fought and fought. None of them gave up after 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 60 minutes. Or, or, most of the rats went over two days fighting and swimming. Almost all of them. It was very different from the first round. 
Why was that? Because they expected to be rescued. That second group of acts expected to be rescued. And so they were, what they had in mind about what the future would hold affected their struggle in the present. It affected their struggle for survival and for life in the present, what the future held or what they believed the future held. And that's exactly what Isaiah is holding out to people who are struggling, who are ready to give up, who have, who have almost just decided this God thing, it's, it's got to be a hoax because everything seems hopeless. It only seems like death. It only seems like sadness and sorrow. Isaiah says, look to the future. It will give you strength for the present struggle. And this is, the, the, I think, what he says encapsulated, is that God's advent, this is, this is what he held out to them to, to keep them going in the present struggle. God's advent will bring great, almost unimaginable, unthinkable change. Now, that word advent may be familiar to some of us, may be unfamiliar to, to others. It, it simply means coming. God's coming will, will bring great, unimaginable, almost unthinkable change. Look at what he says in verse 4. He's holding out this hope of this future promise. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble needs in verse 3. How? Verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Although appearances, all appearances, if they were to just look around and survey the situation, all appearances and all feelings and emotion pointed in the opposite direction, God had not abandoned them and in fact had a different plan for them. A plan to come to them, to reunite with them, to save them and bring them back to himself. And I'm sure the people who read this, even though all the terror hasn't hit quite yet, were excited about what was to come. So they, they could better deal with and better view the present struggle that they were about to go through. God's advent would bring great, almost unimaginable, unthinkable changes. And God's coming was in the salvation, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking to people who are about to be carried off into exile by a foreign nation, and certainly God was going to rescue them and bring them back from that. But that wouldn't and that didn't fix all their problems because what happened after God brought them back? They continued back into sin. They continued back into idolatry. They continued back in disobedience to God. And what came along? Another one Another, another nation, another empire to oppress them. That wasn't the coming that, that God had in mind. That wasn't the ultimate uh, point of telling them that God will come and save you. Not that he's just going to bring you back to the land so that this can spiral all over and cycle and happen again. This was pointing to the person of Jesus. God is coming in salvation in the person of Jesus. That's what this passage is about. The coming of Christ begins a new exodus. The coming of Christ begins a new exodus. Most of us know about the exodus, right? From the book of Exodus, right? So 
Here the people of Israel grow into a great nation in Egypt. There's a, a pharaoh, this ruler who is, um, he is a villainous dude. He oppresses the people. He's cruel. He, he has them in forced labor. Life is horrible for the Israelites. What does God do? Through a series of miraculous events, God brings the people out of Egypt. Then where do they go? He brings them out into the desert, through the desert, and eventually to their home where God has designed. What Isaiah is describing here is a new exodus. Verse 8 says this, And a highway shall be there. Where is he talking about? Well, if you back up just to the previous verses, he's talking about the wilderness, the desert. Verse 6 says, For water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. And a highway shall be there. He's talking about a new exodus. The coming of Christ would bring this new exodus out from under a tyrannous ruler, a cruel master, out from under sin. Sin is, is a cruel master. Think about it. Think about how, how jealousy can eat at us and affect the way we respond to others. Think about how anger can seemingly override our emotions in a given situation and we lash out. Think about how lust can compel us to do things that we would just think, well, I would never do that. Think about how pride can distort our view of a situation and cause us to... Sin is a cruel master that beats us and twists us and breaks us down. And Christ was coming to bring a new exodus. Christ was coming as the firstborn, as the Passover lamb, who would, who would bear the guilt of sin and break the power of sin so that we could go out into the desert on this highway on a new exodus, free from tyranny, free from sin. The coming of Christ began a new exodus. But the coming of Christ also inaugurated a new age in which the, uh, there was a restoration that happened. A restoration from the curse of sin. Think with me back to, to Genesis chapter 3. What happens? Uh, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Adam and Eve sin. They're God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. What happens to them? They're cursed. And the environment in which they live, the ground, the earth is cursed. Everything is spoiled. Everything becomes marred. Everything has taken a hit because of sin. And yet, the coming of Christ inaugurates a new age in which all of this begins to get reversed. Whereas in the words of Jesus in, in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. He breaks the power of the curse and he's bringing everything back to his plan that sin has spoiled. There's a few things listed here about how this curse is, is reversed. Abundance is consumed, uh, abundance consumes scarcity and barrenness. Look at verses 6 and 7. Uh, the last part of verse 6 says, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. 
The desert is an inhospitable place. It's not a place you inhabit. The desert is a place of death. It's a place you get out of as fast as possible. You don't set up shop there. Even the people who roam through the desert, they roam. They don't sit. They don't stay because it's inhospitable. And what is God saying? I'm going to take that which is inhospitable, that which, which has the power to destroy you and to kill you, and I will make it a place of abundance. No longer will it be barren. No longer will, will resources be scarce. It will be a place of abundance. The curse of the ground from Genesis 3, God promises in the coming of Christ, will be reversed. Secondly, Wholeness swallows up disability. Look again at verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's unthinkable. That's unthinkable. Eyes being opened, blindness just simply going away. People who have never walked leaping for joy because disability is swallowed up by wholeness and by restoration. We see this, though. We see this inaugurated in Christ's ministry. There's a, there's a time when John the Baptist who at the beginning of his ministry seems quite sure that Jesus is the one who's going to change the world, who is the Christ, the long-awaited one, and he's going to bring everything uh, to completion and make all things new. And yet, for some reason, doubts begin to, to creep in. And he sends some messengers to Jesus, and he asks him, are you the guy I thought you were? Here's the passage in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John's in prison. He's heard about what Jesus is doing. He hears that lame people are walking. He hears that people that have, that have never heard a noise are hearing. He hears that people that haven't been able to speak are speaking. and He wants to know, what's this all about? Verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. He's not giving, he, Jesus isn't giving him any new information. He just says, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Sound familiar? The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus inaugurates this new age. He brings the, the beginning, the seed of it, which he will bring to completion when he arrives again, when he comes again. But this is a guarantee that this new age, where, where disability and sickness and disease is swallowed up by wholeness. So we see scarcity and barrenness being consumed by abundance. We see disability being, being swallowed up by wholeness and restoration. We see one other thing here. Relationship replaces alienation. 
Relationship replaces alienation. The exiles, think about it, they've been carried away from their land, from Jerusalem, from the place of the temple. The temple was the place where people went to meet God. That was the place of God's presence. If they couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't have God's presence. And so for them to be removed from that and then to have that temple just obliterated and desecrated, what was removed? Any possibility of any sort of communication and fellowship with their Creator God. And yet, here's what the promise of Isaiah 35 says in verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and they shall come to Zion with singing. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. What has been split, a a line, a, a chasm that has been formed is now brought back. The people are being brought back to God. Alienation is no more. There is relationship. There is now fellowship. There is now communion because God is restoring it. We who are dead because of our sin, who have, been, who have been condemned because of our sin, are alienated from God by our sin. Sin separates us from God, right? We all, we all know that. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. But now, God has dealt with that in the coming of Jesus. That was the purpose of this baby being born. Not to, not to give us an example of, of how to live in love. Not to give us an ethical or moral framework. The purpose of Christ's coming was to deal with our sins so that we could be restored to God the Father. So that we could have that relationship. God's advent will bring, has brought, and will bring great, almost unimaginable, unthinkable changes. It happened in Christ's coming, in his incarnation, when he was born as a man, and it will be fully completed when he comes again. What's the the response to this? We see in this passage that recipients of this, recipients of God's redemption, are assured of everlasting joy. The joy is all over this passage. It's, it comes at the very outset of the passage. Verse 1, Isaiah wants you to know joy is coming. The very, last port, the very last verse in the passage, joy. Joy is coming. In the middle, joy is coming. Look at it with me. Verse 35, uh, 35 verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Creation will even rejoice. The, the, the desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Right? He's saying it at the outset. There's going to be joy and gladness. Then look at verse 6. We've already read it. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. Why is he leaping? For joy. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Then the very last verse And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. They're not singing the blues. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's just going to tuck tail and run. There will be joy. 
It's almost unimaginable to think that somebody that's been ransomed out of captivity won't have their affections moved in such a strong way that there's joy. Think about it. If you had a son or a daughter, a family member held somewhere and you receive them back, the response, it's, it's automatic. There's joy. And this is what God's saying. You're redeemed. You're ransomed. You're coming back. I'm bringing you back. There's joy. How can we see broken things that are marred and not experience, that, that are being restored and not experience joy? Here's the reality. The redeemed shall return with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Joy will replace sorrow. Singing will replace uh, sighing. Adulation and adoration will replace anxieties. Sorrows, fears, anxieties, they won't have the last word in this life. Already they're fading. Joy is growing. They will not have the last word. I want you to notice too, and hopefully I'm not stressing something that shouldn't be stressed, but this isn't a temporary thing. Where the mess gets cleaned up for a little while, you know, things get set right, but then after a while, boy, things just go over the cliff again. Right? We all kind of experience that in life. We have these we have these mountaintops of joy, and, and then we have valleys, like the birth of a child. It's awesome, right? Um, holidays, for, for many of us, are so wonderful. Christmas is a time of joy, but then what comes after those things? Hard times, difficulties, sorrows, worries. It cycles. It always happens. But this isn't a thing where, where the mess gets cleaned up and everything's good for a while. My son Malachi, he loves to organize things. Like That's one of his favorite things to do at home. You give him a choice of anything to do, he's going to organize something, pretty likely. He'll put shoes in order, ascending order, smallest to largest, or divide them up male and female, and, and, and make sure they are just precision straight. He will straighten toys. He'll put them... In logical order, he'll go into the kitchen cabinets and clean. There might be a problem. I don't know. I love it. But then what always happens? What always happens is Ezra or one of his sister comes and things are back to chaos after a while, right? But what, what Isaiah says here is not that, boy, God's going to come and things are going to get cleaned up and uh, mm, then we'll have to figure out what's going to happen after that. Listen to what it says again. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. There's going to be a joy that is placed upon us that we are given that will not end. Some, like, as thinking about that, I kind of have a hard time just imagining that. Because life is so chaotic. Life is so full of burdens and anxieties. It's so full of sorrows. I have a hard time really grasping this. Everlasting joy. No more brokenness in my family. Everlasting joy. How, how, can, how can joy be everlasting? Well, Isaiah tells us, because sin and impurity have been banished. Look at verse 8 again. 
um, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. I don't think that that this exodus that is happening on this road called the way of holiness is called the way of holiness because the people, boy, they really clean themselves up and they're really going to do it this time. They're really going to be good people. They're really going to be charitable. They're really going to be kind. They're really going to refrain from those things that they know they shouldn't do. No, this is called the way of holiness because the coming of God that we looked at, the coming of Christ He has dealt with sin once and for all, and he has given us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. It's the way of holiness because sin has been dealt with. How can joy be everlasting? Because the root cause of all sorrow, the root cause of all brokenness, the root cause of all the suffering and and the garbage we see in the world, what's the root cause? It's sin. And yet here, it's disposed of. It's called the way of holiness. Verse, it continues on. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. The unclean shall not pass over it. This is for those who have been redeemed by Christ. Everlasting joy. This is an everlasting joy. A joy that doesn't have an end. But how can it be everlasting? I ask myself that again. How can it be everlasting? Because, Isaiah tells us, dangers have been disposed of. That would, that would stop it. Look at verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. For some of us, this verse isn't all that exciting. You know, lions, beasts. Okay, they're at the zoo. They're great. We like to see them, Right? But lions and beasts, people didn't like to see them in the ancient world. Lions and beasts, as they were on the road traveling, meant they were going to die. Or lions and beasts meant they were not going to get where they wanted to go. Their journey was going to be derailed because they were going to have to flee. And I think what God is saying here is that our journey, our destination is assured because dangers have been disposed of. The way is sure. The path is being cleared for us. God intends to bring us to Zion with singing and everlasting joy, returning us to himself. No matter what is happening now, and I know some of you have great burdens, no matter what is happening now, no matter how horrible it is, God intends to bring you safely home. Everlasting joy joy that doesn't have an end. This is an everlasting joy, a joy that has no end. How can it be everlasting? I ask myself that again. The very last line, the very last line of the chapter, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They head for the hills never to return. It's wiped out. Everlasting joy. But this isn't a promise for all, the entire world, without distinction. There's some very specific people mentioned in this passage. The end of verse 9, we see it's the redeemed who walk on this exodus, on this path, the way of holiness. Verse 10 tells us that it's the redeemed. It's the ransomed. It's the redeemed. 
It's for those who have longed for, who've expected the coming of Christ, who have embraced the coming of Christ in his first coming, in his, in his perfect life, in, sin, in, his, in his bloody death, and who long for his second coming. That's who this promise of everlasting joy is for. It's not for those who earned it or are trying to gain it. It's those who understand that they are under subjection of the cruel tyranny of sin, and, ap- and apart from Christ, they are going to stay there. This is for this everlasting joy is for those who have placed their faith and their trust only in Christ Jesus alone. This everlasting joy is for those who understand that, that this journey is made by the grace of God alone and not by anything we can produce of ourselves. It is those who embrace this grace who have everlasting joy. The coming of Christ secures a present joy and a future joy that can strengthen us for our present troubles. The coming of Christ secures a present joy and a future joy that can strengthen us in these present days. Strength for today is found in what the coming of Christ has secured for us tomorrow. Sin has ruined God's plan for his people and his creation, God's people in in God's place, under God's rule and under God's blessing. But in Christmas, God in Christ is restoring his plan, bringing us back to himself. In the person, in the the Christ child, he's restoring that plan. Just over three years ago, I'm sure all of you know the story. I think it happened in the month of August. There were were 33 miners who were trapped almost a half a mile, and I, I can't get my brain around that, a half a mile under the surface of the earth in Chile, or Chile, I don't know, Chile. Um. They were there, and things seemed hopeless. Family was camped out uh, at the mining site, um, but little by little, hope was waning. Even these, these search and rescue professionals were beginning to lose hope. They, they continued on almost as a, a matter of routine, but they had lost hope that they were going to find these 33 men. And these 33 men, huddled in a small room half a mile under the earth's surface, had lost hope as well. And collectively, as a group, as a, as a, um, I think it was a, 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 all 33 of them agreed to two plans. They agreed to two plans after almost the first week. One was a survival plan, sort of. The plan was, is that the first person who died would be summarily eaten. And then the second person who died, they would be eaten so that maybe some of them could survive long enough to be found if they continued searching. The second thing they all voted on and agreed to collectively was an escape plan, sort of. They had an engine of a machine down there. They were just going to flip the power switch and breathe. Breathe in the CO2 and just quietly go to sleep and never wake up. These were their plans because 
One week had gone by, two weeks had gone by, 16 days had gone by, it was hopeless. They were sure it was done. Every one of them agreed to these two plans. And yet, on day 17, two and a half weeks, a drill came through the, the, the roof of the room where they were. Now, what happened was, it took another 52 days for them to be brought to the surface. Now you think, they're ready to give up after 17. Certainly, in 52 days, somebody is going to take their own life. Somebody's just going to give in to hunger and starvation. After 52 more days, somebody's going to flip the switch on that machine, and they just want out of their misery. But they didn't. Those, both of those plans were immediately scrapped on day 17, never to be talked about again by the miners, never to be thought of again, they all said. Why? What was different on day 60? What had changed from day 60 to day 16? Salvation was coming. Rescue was assured. They, they knew there was a, the promise of future joy. One of them said this, on, on day 17, I was so weak, I couldn't even stand. And then, all of a sudden, when the drill came through, I found myself jumping for joy. It was like celebrating having a new child. What had changed? What gave them strength to keep going? They couldn't make it for almost for 17 days. What gave them strength to go for 52 more? The promise of future joy, of holding their loved ones again, of standing and seeing the sunshine again, of enjoying life again. The coming of Christ has secured and secures for us a future joy that can strengthen us for these present days of struggle, for these present days of sorrow, for these present days of anxiety and worries. I think there's at least three ways we can, we can just respond to this passage. One is to just quite literally take the words of Isaiah 35 and, and heed them. 35 verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. knees. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. I have to believe that in this room of 50 or so people, I have to believe there's some weak hands. I have to believe there's some feeble knees. There are some anxieties. There are some worries. There are some struggles. So the command to you is to strengthen them. Make them firm. Bring to them the promises, the many rich and glorious promises of Christ when they're ready to give up, when they're, when they're done, bring to them the promises of Christ. Strengthen their hands. Make firm their feeble knees. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the Christ in their hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. In other words, when we speak the word of God to them, they may feel weak, they may not feel like clinging to Christ, but the words of the gospel that we, that we speak. They're stronger than the Christ that, that they're letting go of in their heart. Their own hearts are uncertain. 
Those of their brothers and sisters are sure. At the same time, this also clarifies that the goal of all Christian community is to encounter one another as bringers of the message of salvation. We need to encounter one another as the messengers, as bringers of the message of this salvation, of this future joy. Some of you feel like cashing it in. You're done. You feel like the situation in your family, situation with health, situation with finances, worries, anxieties, fears, you feel like, what's God up to? Has he abandoned? Has he left me hopeless? And what you need to do is turn to the certain promise the promise God is holding out to you tonight, that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Whatever you're dealing with now, it will be gone. You'll come with singing. The coming of Christ secures for us now and in the future a joy that gives us strength to continue on faithfully with Christ, no matter what our struggle. Would you pray with me? God, obviously you know that we are plagued by weakness. We are overcome with worries and fears, sorrows overwhelm us. And yet, what we're going to celebrate this week is the answer to all those worries and sorrows and fears and burdens and weaknesses. God, you sent your Son to bring us back to yourself, to deal with sin, to reconcile us to yourself, to make all things new. And God, tonight, we lay hold of that promise. We lay hold of the promise of future joy as our strength for just getting through tonight, just getting through tomorrow, just getting through this week. God, help us by faith to lay hold of the promise that everlasting joy shall be upon our heads. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God, put us in your way. May the work of Christ be for us. God, we repent of our sin and we trust in Christ Jesus as our only hope for salvation 
Otherwise, we remain under your anger and wrath. We cling to you in uncertainty. God, give us the strength to strengthen other weak hands and other feeble knees. And may in all of this, the coming of God be longed for, the coming of Christ. We praise these things in His name, Christ's mighty name. Amen.